This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome back to the show and this conversation with writer-director Eduardo Ponti about his critically acclaimed new movie and much Oscar-buzzed film, The Life Ahead, which you can see on Netflix. It has a devastatingly beautiful performance by Sofia Loren, who happens to be Eduardo's mother. I had such an interesting time talking to Eduardo, not only about the film The Life Ahead, but about his life lived and what a life. Eduardo Ponti is the youngest son of Carlo Ponti, producer of some of cinema's biggest films. La Strada, marriage Italian style, starring Sofia Loren. Dr. Zhivago, Blow Up, and so much more. And his mother, Sofia Loren, can only be described as screen legend. She started working at the age of 15, and now at 86, she's made over 100 films. For The Life Ahead, Eduardo Ponti adapted the French novel from 1975, The Life Before Us. Sofia Loren plays Madame Rosa, a Holocaust survivor who takes care of children of prostitutes and kids in need, including a young Senegalese immigrant named Momo. Eduardo and I talk about the making of the movie, what it was like to direct his mother, and how Sofia Loren's own history helped her relate to Madame Rosa. We talk about Lorraine's fierce wisdom and strength and how she never let Hollywood intrude on their childhood. About Carlo Ponti's cinematic legacy, Eduardo's influences, and so much more. Here is a clip, in Italian, from The Life Ahead. Quando tu finisci le parole, sto qui. Avevo la tua età. Sto qui. Era la prima volta che qualcuno mi trattava come una persona degna di fiducia. Che destino è il tuo. E proprio quando non ci credi più che succedono le cose belle. Ma se vuoi. Devi darmi una mano perché da solo non ce la faccio. Se mi vuoi, sono qui. Mr. Ponti, thank you so much for joining me and congratulations on your wonderful movie. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy to be here with you. So you're in L.A., in Switzerland. Where, where are you? I'm, I'm everywhere because on Zoom you're everywhere. No, but yeah. physically, <laughs> vocally I'm everywhere. But physically, I am in uh, Santa Monica. You're a mix, though. It's Switzerland, it's Italian parents, it's everything like that. Has, has it been fine in the pandemic to be able to spend time with your family? I mean, that's been difficult for me. I have my family everywhere. You know, it's been, it's been uh, difficult, but believe it or not, I had to finish my movie during the pandemic. So I, last year, I took 21 planes. Whoa. I'm yeah. almost jealous. <laughs> well, you know, I was, you know, I was very, very careful, you know, throughout, yeah. you know, I, I took uh, six international flights. I mean, six times I had to go back and forth between Los Angeles and Rome to finish the movie. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone because I had throughout the trip, not only did I have an N95 mask throughout, but also a face shield. So it was, you know, so for, for 21 flights, that was my uniform, you know. On the positive side of things, in a way, what the pandemic gave us as far as post-production schedule is that it extended our post-production schedule for a few months. So I was able to have, you know, 
ironically, more time. I remember reading sometime a while ago when you were starting to do press for The Life Ahead, you said, and you're talking about your mom in the movie, and you said, this movie is Sophia with an F. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I've been spelling the great Sophia Loren's name wrong all this time, but you really meant something else with that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I meant that uh, my mother was born with that spelling. My mother was born with an F. And then when she became Sophia Loren, she changed it from an F to a PH or people changed it for her to make it sound more continental, more cosmopolitan, more international. But the truth is, you know, my mother in her soul never made that spelling change. In her heart, she is Sophia with an F. In her heart, she is that little girl who was raised in Pozzuoli and Naples and who suffered uh, the Second World War and who, uh, you know, was very close to her grandmother. Her grandmother really raised her more than her own mother. She is that woman, and that is her strength. She never lost sight of those roots. So when I'm going to make a movie with my mother, I clearly want to present, to show people the woman, the person that I know, the person that raised me. And the person that raised me is clearly not Sophia with a PH, but Sophia with an F. We're going to get back to you working with her. I want, I want to give some context about this incredible story. So The Life Ahead, the movie takes place in Bari, Italy, in present day, but it's really based on a book from 1975 by, excuse my French, Romain Gary. Tell me why you wanted to bring this story to today. Why is it relevant? Yeah, first of all, you know, I think that beautiful stories of love and friendship are always relevant. But what makes this one even more relevant is that you have... Uh, two protagonists who on the surface, everything separates, you know, race, religion, culture, age, and they're separated by all these things. And yet they're two opposite sides of the same coin. And they learn to understand that throughout the film, because even though they're defined by pain, by loss, they're mostly defined by hope and resilience. And they find that out. So that's the first thing that very much attracted me. The second thing was that Romain Gary in La Vie de Vensois, the book, um, told the story of the film through the point of view of this 12-year-old immigrant child. And I really felt, to, and I really felt that that was important. You know, uh, empathy starts when you begin seeing life through the eyes of another. And my goodness, do we need empathy in this world right now. So I, I, when I read it, I felt such a great sense of investment for this child and all of us need to feel that sense of investment for other people people who are struggling people who are trying to find a home people who are just trying to live and survive of course unfortunately it feels so relevant because you know questions of immigration and prejudice um are still with us you know the movie and the book really talk about the importance of being seen and heard and that's what it takes all we need is dignity all we need is to be able to hear and see another person so that they feel heard and seen. And that's the beginning of dignity. That's the beginning of starting to uh, live a life that you can be proud of, you know, and that's how we can help each other. What's beautiful about the book and the story is that it is not only Madame Rosa who helps Momo, but it is Momo who also helps Madame Rosa. It's this symbiotic relationship of these two people who pull each other up. And it's very beautiful that way.
Let's talk about the, the wonderful Momo, Ibrahima Gue, if I'm yeah. pronouncing that correctly. And I'm sure he wasn't that familiar with Sofia Loren, but what was it like just to walk around the streets of Italy with, with her? It must have been a trip for him. Well, I think that what was interesting is that God, God only knows what people told him about my mother when <laughs> he got the part. I mean, just, and I'm just talking about at home. The people who called them, do you realize who you're going to act opposite? You know, especially in Italy. I mean, if it was in America, it would be something else. But this was in Italy. So the first thing that I did to really demystify my mother in his eyes, for him to realize that she was just absolutely a normal person, was for all of us to live together. So throughout pre-production and principal photography, we all live together. Uh, because I wanted him to have my experience of my mother. I wanted all of us to have breakfast together, lunch, dinner, after a tiring shooting day to see how she would sit on a bench in front of the ocean and just stare out and have him just join her and say nothing but just be together. Uh, that was very, very important because what he saw was not the icon that people see, but really just the woman, just the person, so that when he was on set, he could relate to her in such a way. So that was very, very a very important step towards demystifying this icon. Yeah. So if I if I need her demystified, you mean I can move in with you guys? You can and absolutely <laughs> move in. It's a four months process. It takes four months to demystify. And then she's just normal. I and doubt then she's it. normal. It takes four months, but then she's absolutely it. normal. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, anyway, yeah. you were going to say, continue how you worked with him otherwise. So, so you know, so, so you have to also bear in mind that, you know, I mean, the process of working with an actor like this is a step-by-step, is -step, uh, you know, uh, system. So that first you have to cast the right person. And by the right person is you have to cast an actor whose soul, whose very DNA aligns itself with the DNA of the character. So when I was casting for Momo, I knew two things. I knew that whoever we would find, they, they would need to be an, an absolute immigrant, somebody who had arrived in Italy no more than five years from the moment that we started shooting. And they had to be Muslim because it was very important for the movie for him to be a Muslim child. It was very important to me. And really just for the DNA of that character to understand where he comes from, to understand all of that. So when I found Ibra, and he was one of 350 children that I, that I auditioned. Uh, he already had naturally great instincts as an actor without even ever having acting, acted in his life. The fact that he was auditioning was an accident. Like these things happen, these miracles happen. It was one of those miracles. It was an accident. He wasn't meant to act. He never thought that he would act. And the audition process was him walking in a room and improvising the scene where he steals the candlesticks and he tries to sell them to Ruspa. And so, and so I was Ruspa, and so he walked into the room, and as he walked into the room, the door got stuck. And instead of breaking the scene, instead of interrupting the scene, like most kids would have done at that point, he used the door getting stuck as part of the scene. And I realized, that's funny, he has the instincts of an actor. So after that, I started seeing many other kids, but it was Ibra's face that always came back to me, because... He had the soul of the character. In other words, he had something in his eyes gave me that light of the second half of Momo, that heart, uh, the humanity of Momo in the second half of 
the movie. And that's what I was looking for. I wasn't so much looking for the irreverent insulin momo in the beginning because that's easy to create. What I was looking for was the heart of that child, which I cannot create. That's something that you have to be born. So finally, I picked four children and I put them all through this acting boot camp for a month to basically give them the tools to be themselves, just to, to them to understand what acting means and because they were also, they all had this talent, but then you have to kind of elevate that talent with tools so that they could feel comfortable on set. And then in the end, I chose him. And he was just, you know, he was just, he was just magical. And what's interesting is when we started rehearsing the movie and we started rehearsing the movie with the first scenes, he was very shy being rude to my mother. Very, very, very shy. So those scenes weren't really hitting the way that they ought to hit. And if you don't hit the insolence at the beginning, then the heart at the end loses its power. So it was very important that he was really, really, really an asshole to my mother. Oh. So uh, it wasn't working. And he, going back to him being having those instincts, he had the instinct of going up to my mother one day and saying, you know, Sophia, every time that I have to say these horrible things at you, when I go home, it just hurts. It just hurts me. It makes me upset. So can you give me permission to be mean to you? Which is really a great actress, that all, actress who studied and Rada and Lee Strasberg, that's what they do. They ask for permission to do certain things so that there's an entente, there's a rapport in between them. And my mother looked at him, I was like, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, this is only acting. Don't worry, this, absolutely. You're never gonna, you know, you're never gonna offend me. And, and after that, he was, so mean to my mother and it made me so happy <laughs> in the movie on the set of course because around uh, outside of the set he could not have been a, a, a resort it's also such an empathetic thing to think of as a young person yes it's amazing but he is like that he is like that he is he's empathy incarnate and then the character of Madame Rosa, I'm actually talking to you today on the International Day of the Remembrance of the Holocaust. She's a Holocaust survivor and, and um, an incredibly strong and interesting character. And you've said, and your mother said, that even though these are not experiences she went through, she does feel a very personal connection to this character, as your whole family does. Can you talk about that? Well, it's funny because when I read the book... Uh the voice that came into my head when I would read Madame Rosa's dialogue lines in the novel was my mother's voice. And when she read the script, what she heard was her mother's voice, uh, my grandmother's voice in the right. script. And there is a connection. The connection is, uh, you know, some connections are mysterious, things that just come from places that are abstract, places that are deeper than, than what we understand. And then other things are that I think that what she recognized and what I recognized in the character is that combination of toughness and fragility that both my mother and in fact, my grandmother, uh, you know, both have. That combination of everything is very dramatic but everything is also quite comedic, which is extremely Neapolitan, that you cannot separate drama from comedy and comedy from drama. It's the same thing, just seen in a different angle. 
which must have been a helpful quality of I mean, going through what they did with the war and all well, that. Well, and, and exactly. And, and then I think that people, you know, survivors have always a wonderful sense of humor because that's how they survived. That's how their heart kept on beating despite the traumas. You know, you, 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 you know humor is a healing medicine in many, many ways. Absolutely. And I get this feeling that there's this feeling of justice and fairness that Madame Rosa has that I feel like seems like your mother has also. That I just have to ask you if a story is true that I heard that your mother spent her first earnings from a movie to buy her father's name for her sister because she felt it was so unfair because it was an illegitimate situation. Yeah, that's a true story. It's a true story. My, 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 my mother's father, whom I've never called my grandfather, um, never, never recognized uh, my aunt as his own daughter. And for some reason, my aunt was, you know, it really upset my aunt, even though he was never part of their lives at all. But for her, belonging to, to, to that family it was important, right? It was a sense of belonging it was, it was really important. And so when my mother started making money, uh, her father took it upon himself to, uh, to exploit that fact and uh, told her, if you really want your sister to have my name, I'm, I'm willing to give it to her at a price. Oh, my God. And so, and so he did that. Yeah. Wow. And so that was her first paycheck she paid for her that. Her first paycheck was, was to pay for her sister's family name. Yeah. So that, that's what I mean with this sort of, I get there's this feeling of things should be fair and right. Well, it's, it's about priorities. It, it's about more than fairness. It's, it's about what matters in life. And you stick to what matters. And you put that into context. You know, putting things into context and having the right perspective and having the right priorities make for a more peaceful life, more serene life. You know, it's when we get overwhelmed by the static of life, by the noise, by uh, suddenly the most insignificant thing becomes the most important thing. That's when you start feeling overwhelmed, upset, and you don't know why. But that takes so much wisdom when you're as young and you have Hollywood as your feet, as your mother. I've, she seems so wise. You, you, you talk about in another amazing little Netflix documentary that you guys are in that I can really recommend to, to the listeners called What Would uh, Sophia Loren Do? About how Hollywood never intruded on your lives. And I'm just thinking that you're saying that that takes a lot of knowing yourself when you're so young as she was to feel those priorities as you're talking about? Oh, my mother was, was born with that, you know, my mother is very smart. That helps. And my mother is also very, very grounded. So when you, combine, when you combine a certain groundedness with a certain intelligence, you have wisdom. That's, that's what wisdom is. It's, 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 it's intelligent groundedness. And she never lost sight of, you know, she never let the spotlight define her. And so that has repercussions. It means that she doesn't bring the spotlight in the house. It means that she doesn't live and die if the spotlight suddenly is moved on to somebody else or dimmed or turned off. All these things are things that were very natural for her. 
things that other people would find absolutely irresistible. My mother resisted them very, very naturally because her heart was always with us, with her family, with her country, uh, with Naples. And she knew, and also because she was much more interested, she's always been much more interested in the work than she's been with the fame of it all. You know, some people continue working because they want to continue being famous. My mother didn't continue working because she wanted to continue being famous. She continued working because she wanted to continue work, because she wanted to continue to inhabit certain characters, tell certain stories. Yeah, there's even that story she, talk, she talks about in the documentary, how Cary Grant proposed to her, but she felt that your father, Carlo, that she needed Italy, she needed that stability. And I mean, that's a, that's a you know, they could have been that power couple, Cary Grant, you know, you know, the ones that get the little Bradgelina nickname type of thing, but she knew. Yeah, because she's grounded that way, you know, she's, she's not somebody who gets, I mean, I think that there was, you know, and I've never really spoken about this, but knowing my mother, I think that there was a, a very concrete attraction between my mother and Cary Grant, but I think that it was an attraction rather than love. Love is something else. Love sometimes is more quiet. Love is something that uh, stands the test of time in a different way. What happened between my mother and Cary Grant was more of an attraction, more something that was very passionate but short-lived, whereas between my father and my mother, it was more of a deep-seated love, something much more solid to build a life on. That's a pretty wise thing to know because a lot of, a lot of us in life sort of choose that quick attraction. She had something for life. But yeah. I want to circle back. You were talking about this Neapolitan and you had her speak Neapolitan in this movie. Was that this reason as well, that she could be her most authentic self? Or? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's a, whenever you work with an actor, you want to be able to work with them in their native tongue because it is in their native tongue that all these buttons get pushed inside of them that they don't even know they have. Anything unconscious comes out in their native tongue. They can still do a fair enough job in other languages, but it's not the same. And when my mother speaks Neapolitan, she goes back to those streets, she becomes rather gritty. She becomes rather irreverent, like Madame Rosa. And by the way, her voice also drops. If you hear, if you make the experiment of, 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 of going from the original Italian version of the movie and you click to the English dub, which she did also for Netflix, you will hear that her voice raises a tone in English, that she, she, her voice is lower How in Neapolitan. Yeah. And so, you know, Everything is music. So when your voice is lower, when you, when the voice, because the voice in Neapolitan is more born in the belly than the voice in English, which is more, bo more of an intellectual voice. The Neapolitan voice is born from the emotions. And so you hear that, you hear it because it's born from the abdomen as opposed to the throat. That's pretty incredible that as a director, you, because that does make such a huge difference that we as the viewers can't even, we don't even know why, we, but there's something there that feels more authentic. Well, directing is, directing is uh, a million unconscious and subliminal choices a day that some are I'm very conscious of, some I'm not. But what is beautiful about a movie is that in the end, when all is said and done, a director can't pretend to be somebody else when making a movie. There are too many unconscious choices that we make. So what ends up being on the screen is really exactly who you are.
for better or for worse. You were an assistant to both Antonioni and Altman, correct? Uh, more to Antonioni. Altman we knew uh, because my mother had done uh, Prêt-à-Porter with him. So it was more of, a, of, a, of an acquaintance. But Antonioni, I was absolutely his assistant, yes. It was amazing. You know, uh, when I worked with him, he had already suffered his stroke. So half of his body was paralyzed. And that did not stop him in any way, shape, or form. What movie was this? Uh, it was a movie that didn't get made. It was a movie that was uh, to be shot in uh, America, written by Rudy Wurlitzer. And I was still in university, and I would get off school every afternoon and work with uh, Michelangelo, uh, reading the script for him and just kind of, you know, being there for him, anything that he needed. And what was amazing was, despite the stroke, despite his advanced age, he would have such a lust for life. He would have such a irresistible desire to go out every night and have dinner and experience people and things and want to go to Palm Springs and see what that was all about. And, and you would see how all these experiences would funnel into the reservoir of his creativity. And then out of the blue, Five days later, you know, he would, he would, he would mouth Palm Springs, uh, that windmill, and then he would, which, which would basically mean, let's set that scene there because he had seen it. And what I learned from that is that it is your life, your experiences that enrich, that deepen the life and the experience of the movie, that you have to be a creative radar absorbing the energy of places of people of memories and then and then always use those in your movies make everything as authentic as personal as possible because it is in the personal that you end up finding the universal would you say that you're greatly influenced as a director of Italian cinema? Your education is primarily in the states, right? I think I'm influenced by a lot of cinemas. I yeah. think one of my first influences was Polish. It was Krzysztof Kieslowski, one of my first influences. You know, the way that he, you know, uh, blue, you know, blue, white, and red were the, the first three movies that I saw that I felt a very, very strong connection to. Uh, the intimacy of them, the humanity of them. And so that was my first influence. You know, I can't call Italian cinema my influence because it's in my bones. It's more than an influence. It's my DNA. It's, it's everything I know without even switching it on. Because I was not really born in it because we were born, I was raised more in Paris and, and in Switzerland. But, but it, 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 you know, almost like through obno the hypnosis process of my parents and what they were doing and their choices and their priorities and how they approached the work that just gravitated, seeped into me, so to speak. So Italian cinema is not an influence for me. Italian cinema is home. You know, it is, it is what influences me are people who don't put themselves in the foreground, but put the story and the characters in the foreground. What, 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 what inspires me is to meet people who are at the service of something, at the service of the story, I don't want to see a shot. I'm not interested to see how amazing that thing was, how, oh my God, that's, I don't care. 
if I see the, if I notice the shot, maybe it's like when a jacket wears you. You don't want to, you don't want to be worn by a jacket. You want to wear the jacket. I don't want a shot to wear my movie. I want to be able to, you know, have a shot, be part of that story organically of the movie. Um, this is not the first movie you direct your mother. Was it intimidating when you started? No, what's extraordinary? No, no, no. It was so normal. It's so strange, you know, because it's almost like working together came at the tail end of so many conversations about film, so many conversations about story, about character, so many conversations where we shared um, uh, unconsciously or consciously each other's sensibilities. So it was just the natural, organic extension of a relationship that went past the mother-son relationship, but was very, very naturally a relationship of two people who are so similar, who really see eye to eye, who share so much uh, a certain creative sensibility that when we started working together, it was not day one, it was day a thousand. You know, it was, it was always, it's always been, I've always been working with my mother. I, you know, I'm, I'm 46. I've been working with her for 46 years in a sense because of how much we share. Yeah, I want to ask you just briefly about your father. What, what did he bring to your career? Yeah, my, my father would really uh, 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 infuriate me when he would ask me when I was a young student in film school and I would, you know, write scripts and, and you know, I want to do certain things. You know, he would always ask me, why do you want to make this movie? And if I would answer because I love the story, that was not enough. It was about why today, why in the society, why in this world, why now? How does this movie dialogue with the world? And that's something that when I was little, it would just drive me crazy because I never had a good answer. I would go crazy because I never had a good answer. And yet, those are the very questions that one has to ask because a movie doesn't live in the vacuum of itself. A movie lives in how people uh, react, commune with it in a certain sense, you know, either pushing it away or bringing it close to them. Both, both these acts are an act of, of, uh, of interaction in a certain sense. If you don't like something, that's interacting with it. If you love it, that's interacting. And, and where does a movie fit into the the kind of the zeitgeist, the social zeitgeist, the emotional zeitgeist, the human zeitgeist of uh, world. And, and that's what he taught me. And, and, and this is something that he had spades of, you know, that concept of understanding. He really had a finger on the pulse of society. And when he made movies, he always made them for a specific reason, other than I can make money with it or I love this book. Much more than that. It was always, they always had a social dimension, yeah. His body of work, they still are relevant. I mean, these are films that yeah. don't die. He seemed to have his finger on what would live on. Yeah, because again, if you're honest with what you do, then it, that you're not exploiting something. You know, people, you know, things, you know, things that are born out of any form of, of exploitation, whether it's commercial or, or a story that, you know, is ripped through, you know, from the headlines, you know, those things are short-term things. 
you know, he always thought of something that was more long-term, something that could stand the test of time. And that's something that I must say, very humbly, I al al also think about, you know, I, I always think about, you know, how is this something that can live today for today, but can also live tomorrow for tomorrow, you know? Your mother has, of course, worked with some of the world's best directors. Does she have, does she know what she wants in a director? Yeah, she wants a father figure. Yeah. She was raised without a father and she treats directors, she trusts directors. She wants to believe in a director the way that you want to believe in your father, the way that you want to trust your, your father. So she really gives herself to directors for better or worse, because some directors don't really know how to, how to receive that generosity and uh, others can actually exploit it and others can actually build from it and create a rapport that is of mutual generosity like, mm -hmm. like this. So that's what she's looking for. You know, she's a, she's a very open, generous person, you know, and at the same time, you know, there are these, you know, she can shift into the sixth gear where the genius shows up and she does something that is completely unexpected, bored from who knows where. And you realize, oh my God, that's <laughs> why you're so Sophia Loren. That's yeah. why you're Sophia Loren. Yeah. That's why you are that because you allow yourself to go places that people don't even know they kind of have. They don't know. She has rooms inside of herself that other people don't know they have. We all have those rooms. All of us have those rooms, but most of us don't have the blueprints to reach them. She, I don't even know that she's conscious that she has those blueprints, but she magically finds herself in these rooms because she's honest with herself. Can you describe, was there a scene like that in the making of this movie? Yeah, there was. I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's a it, it, it's a continuation of these moments. It's a continuation of these moments. You know, you know, they're they're macro moments, huh? That I'm going to talk about. Really, just you know, a second when after Momo finds Madame Rosa in the cellar and she screams at him to go away, we cut to a scene in the veranda where Momo is drawing and Madame Rosa appears and tells her that. At her age, she also liked to draw. It's her way of, of kind of making peace. She realizes that she's gone too far with him. So she sits opposite him. She asks him whether uh, he can show her the drawing. He says no. And then she decides to open up. And then she decides to tell her that in the cellar, she feels at home. She feels secure. She feels safe. And he says, why? And she looks at him. And says in Italian, which means that's how it is. And when she did it, it was the first take. She looks at him and there is such a surge of emotion that comes out that she can barely utter the word and her voice goes up and she looks. And right at that moment when the emotion hits the eyes, she pulls it back. You know, I called cut and it was the first take. That's the take you took. And I said, Mama, wh where did that come from? And she again said, Ecosi. that's how it is. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're gifts that she gives herself and that she gives to us. Gifts of just un unvarnished truth, but truth that is never showy.
truth that is rooted in history and humanity and shyness. That's why when you, when, when Sophia Loren cries in a movie, you cry with her because she does it in a way that you know she'd rather not, but she can't help it. And that fact makes it so relatable to all of us. We'd rather not cry, but we can't help it. And that's what Sophia Loren gives. And then, you know, and there's an accumulation of all these things that happen, you know, in this movie that then become what the role is, you know, and I can, and I can, and all I need to do is like a conductor, you know, you, you, you dial the emotion a little bit more, a little bit less, and you make sure that you create an environment where she feels comfortable. She understands what's happening, the dynamics, because my mother can't act. My mother is. So if she doesn't quite understand what's happening in the scene or the dynamic, she can't fake it. It's not, she's not good at faking it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be wrong. She has to really understand the dynamic. So those are the conversations that are important because when she understands the dynamic, when she kind of relaxes into, okay, so that's my sandbox. This is, okay, I get it. And then you just step away and you let her do her thing. There's so much awards buzz and all that Hollywood thing around this movie, which I guess your mother may be used to, but maybe a little bit more new for you. What's it like? What are you feeling going about the reception? And you know, more than the more than the awards, which is a thing in itself, but but really just talking about the reception of the movie. You know, it's when it happens to you at 46 and not at 26. It's wonderful because you realize that you're not defined by this response. You're not defined by the success, but you can truly enjoy it for what it is. And the feeling that you get from this response is, of course, a sense of relief <laughs> that it worked, but also this immense sense of gratitude. That's really what you get. What's beautiful about this movie is that all the humanity and all the empathy and all the emotion that I try to put into this movie naturally, just, just, just by making this movie, what's beautiful is that that's what you get in return from the audience. That same humanity, that same humanity, that same empathy. And so for me, you know, it's, 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 it's really, really wonderful. And it's really that sense of gratitude that I feel first and foremost. Finally, Eduardo, there's there's a beautiful scene um, towards the end of the film. I don't want to give it away too much. Where, but Madame Rosa is showing Momo a picture of you know something from her childhood, and she says, "I would give up all my memories to remember this one." I was wondering if there's that if you have one of those. You know, not, uh, you know, there are. I'm I'm blessed. I mean, you want to wish upon a person to have so many of those that you can't. Uh, identify one and I think that in my life you know I've had so many of those like the birth of both my children uh, when I asked my wife to marry me uh, just working with my mother certain moments of working with her certain things that we shared together you know there's there are so many of those that I wish people uh, that same thing that I wish people that they have more than just one yeah 
that's that's a lucky life yeah. thank you so much i wish you the best of luck going forward with this movie um and i thank you so much for your time with me i really appreciate it no thank you so much it was a pleasure it was great thank you very much and all the best to your mother and please tell her how incredible she is in the movie I will. I will definitely. I will. No, thank you. It was great. It was great. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eduardo Ponti. The Life Ahead is available on Netflix, as well as the very wonderful documentary short, What Would Sophia Loren Do? So we have so much Sundance coverage coming up on the show, as well as on our social media. So there's some news and busy weeks ahead. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps others who are looking for this kind of content to find us. Thank you so much, and see you next time. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.